Insights to Live By, the podcast, discovering new pearls of wisdom to enrich our lives. What does it take to master the challenges of massive disruption? How can one leverage the power of uncertainty to build long-term resilience? Hello and welcome to Insights to Live By. I am your host, Matt Zinman. So great to be with you as we continue the new series in the year and Wow, I have the perfect guest for today's topic, as one might expect. He is a soon-to-be two-time best-selling author, keynote speaker, business mentor, and resilience expert, Adam Markell. Welcome to the show. Uh, it's wonderful to be here, Matt. Thank you for having me. Great to see you. You know, I, I had, of course, my, my prep for the show. I, I, I like to be a well-prepared host. And I got the opportunity. I saw you at the, the, the TEDx that you did, South Lake Tahoe TEDx. Um, really well done. I, I encourage anyone to go see it. Great storyteller, high energy on stage. I don't know, Adam. Where would you like to start? Maybe a new book coming out. That's, that would be a good one. What do you think? That's a good place to start. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Why not? Well, you know, you know what? You, go ahead. I was just going to say we're we're living in in times of of great uncertainty. Yeah, um, I think people that I get to speak to, and I, I'm fortunate to be, um, as you said in the introduction, uh, a speaker. So I I travel uh, throughout this the country, throughout the United States, and globally. Even I haven't done much global traveling recently, as you would imagine, but right. but still uh, have had a lot of opportunity to speak to leaders globally about how they're doing, how their teams, their, their people are doing. And across the board, it doesn't matter if it's, you know, a fortune 50 company or a startup, everybody has the exact same challenge right now. And, and that is they're exhausted. People are exhausted. And in part they're exhausted because uncertainty is exhausting. It <laughs> change, is radical change. You know, disruption is exhausting. Yeah. So. I think massive disruption. Um, that, that was a, uh, you know, a little bit of a lead in, to uh, to the book, but you couldn't you couldn't be more right, and we are going to focus in on that very topic, uh, just the Titanic shift that's been going on, uh, the area in and around well being. Uh, I certainly have some crossover in this area. I did some research, and there was just a mental health and work report out it was from Mindshare Partners. Seventy six percent. Don't we love stats here on the show? Not really, but we're just going to jump in on this one. U.S. workers experiencing at least one mental health symptom in the past year. Burnout, to your point, is 56%. Depression, 46 Anxiety, 40 People are really hurting. And so this is the right message. And resilience is, uh, you know, certainly the right anecdote to antidote as much as possible. So let's, uh, let's speak to that. But first, you know, also you're already established as a best-selling author, number one, Wall Street Journal, USA Today, LA Times, Publisher Weekly. Uh, Pivot, the art and science of reinventing your career and life, another topic very close to my heart. And now, next week, on 2-22, we've got Change Proof, leveraging the power of uncertainty 
to build long-term resilience. Hold that up a little bit more. It's a brand new cover. There it is. Congratulations. Pretty good looking cover, right? It really, think? it is. It is. I mean, I know it's kind of cheeky for me to say that, but um, you do sort of fall in love with these things. I mean, it is um, a book is, 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 is a, it's a project for sure. It takes a village for sure. It, you know, I, being a daddy, being a husband for 30 plus years, I've seen, I've seen, I've, I've witnessed four, four, uh, four beautiful births, beautiful, healthy children. Um, so it's, it's funny to say it this way, but you know, a book is like giving birth or I want to, I want to pull that back. <laughs> it's, it's as close as, as, as a man, I, for me, as, as a, somebody who can never actually give birth to a child, this is as close as I've come to the, to the sort of length of discomfort and the excruciating pain. Of course. <laughs> and, 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 and the other piece of it too, being that you have, um, that you're, you're have a selective memory, like with the birth of our first child, uh, you know, it was, it was, a, it was a whole, uh, you know, life altering experience. And then a year later or, or a year and a half later, um, we had, we had forgotten about, about just how, um, you know, not how life altering it was, but, but how painful that experience was not just physically, but in so many other ways, because it was, you know, uh, such a massive change in our lives. And people don't talk about that so often, I suppose, but, uh, but it, it, uh, it just made us feel like, you know, let's do it again. Like we forgot the pain of it. So yeah, I, I right. had this book you're, you're a couple yeah. of years ago and it, and it did really well. It was a bestseller and it was a story uh, very much about a painful period in my life. Um, when I was transitioning out of being a lawyer, I was an attorney for 18 plus years. And I would wake up in the morning and would start my day feeling dread. I would put my feet on the floor and, and I would just have feelings of anxiousness, anxiety, um, and, and dread. And that was just so, so odd and so strange. Um, maybe we'll get into that a little bit, uh, a little bit later as well. But I wrote this book all about how I needed to make some changes, some small and not so small changes to my personal life and my career path. Um, and ultimately it led to that book pivot, which was again, a big project. And it was a painful thing to, to just get it, get it produced, get it finally, um, not just written and, and published, but also marketed. And, uh, and, but I forgot <laughs> a couple of years later, I was like, Oh, oh man, this is you know, hard. We should, we should do another book. You it know? Is. Let's do another book. It's like my wife and I going, we should have another kid. <laughs> and, and ultimately we had four, four children. And uh, it, it's been, it's the most blissful, painful experience I think that I've ever had. So uh, with yeah, that, we do have this brand new book. Well, let me, let me just book, take pause here yeah. and, 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 you know, inter interject a bit. I can totally relate. My audience knows I'm, I, I authored Z-isms and uh, Insights to Live by the subtitle, which is of course, naturally where the show title came from. And uh, we've done we've done some uh, some content around the publishing journey. And just while we're on point, anyone out there who is thinking about writing a book, always wanted to write a book. The single advice to give here is just start. Just start it. Take a weekend. Just write and see where you are. Maybe it's a blog. Could end up being a blog. But maybe just maybe you've got something there. Show it to some people couple days of work and then you'll know it's no longer an idea once you put it on on paper it becomes something physical you know 
Adam, I have to say, the, the hardest thing for me, although when you talk about birth of kids, there's no choice, right? They're, they arrive. How do you how do you choose when to stop writing the book? When, when is it like, okay, that's Ooh. the last word? You know, that was one of the hardest things, I, I have to admit, uh, to, to say, okay, you're done. Or, well, I guess it's the editor in the end that says, you know, gets the final word on on the last word on, you know, post uh, post writing. But it is. I don't know. You know, this is a McGraw-Hill book, um, you know, really a good business publisher, maybe the biggest business publish, publisher in, in the world at yeah, this point. Sure. My first book was with Simon and & Schuster, and that was a great publisher for that particular um piece of uh you know piece of writing um and editors are different publishing houses are different i think you get a different experience uh depending on on which one and and um you know it's um this is the most editing i've ever done on a book this Hmm. this went through many 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 rounds of, of editing uh you know edits and um you know in the end i uh i definitely had the last word on the last word which was, which was cool. But I want to go back to your question because, um, you know, I think it's just the same in any, in any art, but it could be, it could be about a lot of things too, is that sometimes you just, uh, you have to, you have to take your, you know, take your paintbrush off the canvas. You have to take your pen off the paper, uh, your hands off the keyboard, all that kind of thing. Um, You know, we started with kids. I suppose it's not a bad way to go too. you know, at a certain point you have to, you have to just let, let them go. You have to let them live and, and experience life and make mistakes, even though there are mistakes they'll make that you've made and would love to see them avoid, or they'll make brand new ones that you can see coming or that you might anticipate because we're older and, you know, there's something to age, you know, there's a lot, a lot of things that aren't great about getting older. uh, But one of the great things is that it, you're, you're filled, you have greater wisdom and, and you are, you have a uh, an instinct that's that's been formed over years of just experiencing things, experiencing life, and those instincts can really inform your decision making. I mean, our our lives are nothing but a product of the decisions we've made. You know, everything that's happening in our lives at this moment is just the product of a decision we made sometime in the past. Mm. So, better decision making is is really i think what we're all after certainly with with the people that we work with in in the business uh context uh when we're either speaking or we're delivering uh uh we're in a workshop setting and and helping leaders uh develop uh, a capacity to not just endure change but embrace change not just uh survive uh disruption but actually but actually bounce forward thrive in in an environment whether people are just sort of hanging on you know white knuckled and all that and the essence of your ability to do that has to do with how you think and how you make decisions um so you know with our kids uh, every one of our kids is out of the house now which is remarkable and uh and you just have to let you know for at least this is my parenting advice for whatever it's worth uh, at a certain point you have to take your your hands off you have to right. just let go and let them um experience life and it's the same thing in in an art um at a certain point you know too much is too much and and you can destroy something really great by by sort of micro um managing it or analyzing it to to death um and so yeah it's i don't there's no there's no moment in time that i said okay uh you know this is it it was just at a certain point 
I looked at the thing and I said, anything else is going to be in the next book. I mean, because, that, you know, as we continue to think about things and I'm an idea guy, I'm a resilience guy. And, and I, I think about things, I research things um, and our team does, you know, we're constantly finding new insights, new, oh, that should go in the book. Oh, that would be great in the book. Oh, we should go back and, you know, change that and, you know, add that or whatever. And it's like, you just have to go, nope, done. Yeah, <laughs> done? exactly. I went Next. with the um, I went with the self imposed deadline. It's like at this point, no one's. Uh, I'm the only one who knows the difference. <laughs> so it's like, okay, here's the last day. Now, a word of caution, Adam. You sound like you're dropping some some heavy wisdom, some insights to live by. That is the bottom third of our show. So you can't be stealing your own thunder, or you have to be coming back with some other insights to live by. I just want to want to let you know you don't want to waste the good stuff up here. Let's get into resilience. Okay, now. <laughs> Let me ask you, Matt, I have the desire to just say this out loud. Go ahead. I'm a bottomless pit. I know. I know. I'm not concerned <laughs> insight, about you. So You're just talking about wisdom. About it, yeah, I'm not. I'm, I'm just joking around. You get this is that. what happens when you're 56, man. And you've lost, you know, I've got, I've got a great haircut to show for my, for my years of experience. So. I'm with you. I'm right there with you. Trust me. Um, so let me, let's start here. This makes sense. So, you know, just resilience and people have different interpretations of just the word itself. And let's just get everyone on the same page. I mean, certainly in, in focusing on it with the new book, uh, in being change-proof, uh, let's talk about what is the context of resilience to you? How are you positioning it and, and defining it for people? So let's start with what it's not. And, mm. and I, I appreciate the fact that you teed up this question because it's, it's fundamentally, it's the place that I always begin this conversation with folks. And so resilience is not about how we endure. Resilience is not about how we bounce back, even though that's more often than not when we, when we are surveying how people define it, that's exactly how they see it. They see it almost like, you know, Rocky. Um, uh, here's a quick quiz for you, Matt. What's the year of the very first Rocky movie? Any clue? Uh, I'm in Philadelphia. It's 1976. Oh, buddy. There it is. A Philly guy knows this. Yes. All right. Next question. How many Rocky movies have they made? Uh, including the creeds and things like that. Wow. How many slice? Uh, I think that's, I think it's at least six, six or seven, six. Okay. I I got you this one. Eight, eight, eight. What a franchise, right? So here's the thing about Rocky. And I, I remember seeing this movie when I was quite, quite a little kid with my dad and, you know, Rocky just every single time he gets knocked down, he gets knocked down a lot in that movie. I've, I've actually wanted to go back and count the number of times this guy gets knocked down in that movie. But every single time he gets knocked down, Matt, what, what happens? Of course, he gets back up. He gets back up, right? So it's, it's classic Hollywood, and he wins our hearts in this movie, but he loses the fight. And I'm originally from New York, and we, we spent a lot of time raising our kids in New Jersey, too. So as people from where I'm from would say, in the end of that movie, he don't look too good. Right. He didn't look this good. guy, this guy is literally all banged up and he loses the fight. And many people think that resilience is this capacity to just take the punch, take the hit and keep and keep getting back up. Sure. And our research is clear. We've we've studied this with more than 3000 leaders globally uh, over the last several years. Resilience is is not about how we endure something. It's about how we recover from something. This, this is a fundamental difference in how we define it. Resilience is our ability to recover and then 
from that recovery, we experience growth. It's very similar to being in the gym. You know, you wouldn't think about going to the gym and just working out for six straight hours or 10 straight hours with, with no break in between, or you wouldn't work your, the same muscle group every single day, day after day, day after day, because you know, at some point you would become exhausted. That muscle would become exhausted and ultimately burned out and, and, eventually lead to an injury. Um, so we have to start by understanding that, again, resilience is born out of our, our ability to recover. And the way we would, would point people in the direction forward, it's our capacity to create rituals for recovery, our ability to ritualize the, the recovery that then produces resilience. Well, that's perfect. Let's, let's, let's keep going on that point in terms of just the practical side of it. Let's keep going. People are getting knocked down. I mean, that was the, the theme, you know, that we know is, is happening in and around the, the, the uncertainty, the massive disruption that's going on. Uh, people are, you know, burned out. Uh, they, they have to find a way to recover with all else going on. What are those techniques that you recommend they do to build that resilience? Well, first of all, let's start with the place where this is happening more than anywhere else. And that's the workplace. You know, I mean, the great resignation is, is not as um, unfathomable as, as we might imagine. People are leaving because they don't actually feel that the, the, the organization that they're, that they're working for have their back, you know, that, that, they don't feel that people they're, uh, that, they're, that they are being led by have their back. And, and what we mean by that is, you know, when you, when you know that somebody has your back, you know that they're, they're interested in your well-being. And people are, are uh, especially in these times right now, being, being asked to just continue to, to plod forward. Um, it's kind of like the, the race that never ends, the marathon that never ends. And, um, and again, there's all the signs everywhere that folks are exhausted, but they're not being cared for. So I think it's really important that we just sort of take stock in the moment. And, and the moment is clear um, that this is a kind of an inflection point where organizations will either learn this lesson and learn it quickly and turn this great resignation into a great restoration. And I think it can be, and I think it will be ultimately. Um, because it's just, uh, you know, the marketplace is speaking loud and clear as to that. Um, when, when it comes to the actual way that you ritualize recovery, there's kind of two, two tracks that we can take. And, I'll, and, the, and maybe I'll share a little bit of both of these stories uh, with your audience so that we can get clear on it. Um, the first thing that I, I usually begin with when I, I will keynote uh, for an organization is I start with this story, and I actually have this right here on my desk. So this is an old lifeguard whistle right here. Right. It's the actual whistle that I carried around with me when I was 19 years old and just a kid working at a place called Jones Beach. And uh, this is the South Shore of Long Island in New York, Atlantic Ocean. Um, and, and on a typical Saturday or Sunday in the middle of the summer, we get like 100,000 people, if you can imagine, 100,000 bodies. Uh, <laughs> and back then, uh, People used to put baby oil on themselves, you know, to really get the sun's rays. Yeah, that's Jersey Shore right there. We were ridiculously ignorant back then as to any of this stuff, but and not even just that, but people would actually, and this is a little little bit 
older generation, but they'd be out there with the reflectors, man. They like literally have a sun. I know. I, I remember that time it was crazy. Of course, the ozone layer was also more intact at that time too. You know what? Good, good. You said that because I think we would have all just been fried. But I'm working at Jones Beach as a as this newly minted lifeguard, and uh, and we hear this sound of three whistles. Now, three whistles. You know, lifeguards communicated with each other on a crowded beach, noisy beach. I mean, you know, wind and waves and sun and everything, you know, going on there and constant uh, environmental changes happening. And we communicate with these piercing whistles. That's how we got each other's attention. Three whistles was a pretty disturbing thing to hear. And you never heard it. I mean, except this one particular day in July where I heard those three whistles and we ran down to our our main stand and the captain of, of our beach, uh, this big guy, Bob, he's like a, you know, kind of Grizzly Adams fella. Uh, he shouted out, they've, they've lost someone at field three, you know, lost someone at field three. It's a search and rescue go. And then 10 of us were assigned to run down the beach and join a search team that was already getting themselves assembled to get out into the water and look for this guy, young, young person in his twenties that was missing. And his family was on the beach. It was, it was kind of a, it was brutal. It was devastating. And we searched for more than an hour, uh, diving, you know, 10 feet or so into this dark, cold Atlantic Ocean, um, swimming right into the current, coming straight up, all of us waiting for everybody's head to come up. Um, and, uh, and after more than an hour, we heard the same thing, heard the whistle uh, for us to get out of the water. And it was, it was one of the most kind of devastating feelings that I'd ever had at that point. I'd never experienced death. Um, and, and this was, this was brutal because we hadn't found him. The search was done. It was going to turn into search and recovery now. Um, and his family was on the beach hugging and, and crying and, um, you know, it was terrible. So, and at that age too, you know, to experience that for sure. It was. And, And the thing is we had to learn that day, you know, our, our, our captain said some things to us, which I'll just quickly share with you. He, you know, he gathered us for a moment of silence. And, and when we, we all were there and we opened our eyes again, he said, look, nobody's, nobody goes down uh, in, in our water. You know, nobody goes down on our watch at this beach right, again. Right. And then he said something that to this day, I'll honestly never forget. He said, you either make the save or you die trying. And, and that was a really intense uh, mantra. It was an intense uh, creed for for this particular lifeguard crew, and and the the moment that moment, all of us, young and and not so young, we had some lifeguards there were in their sixties, frankly, mm. uh, but most of us were like you know late teens or or, or early twenties. Um, we had to learn how to be resilient on the spot, like in the moment. We had to learn how to be resilient, and we didn't know what that meant. And we didn't use that word, of course, that wasn't a word we were thinking about. Um, but we had to get back up on the stands. We had to do our job. We had to focus. Um, and, uh, and we had to learn something about what we were all made of individually and as a crew, even though we were devastated uh, by this event. So we did, we did learn. And part of what, what made us successful after that. And I worked at that beach, even, even through law school. Uh, I was a teacher at that time. I was, I was a middle school English teacher. And then I went back to school and all that. And through all that in the summers, I was a lifeguard at this beach. We never lost anybody again, Matt. Like this is was seven summers later. We, nobody ever went down on our watch again. And 
part of the reason that that was possible was we were able to be at our best consistently in the one hour span of time, one hour by one hour by one hour that we were in charge of a piece of water from the lifeguard stand that we were manning. Um, and, and the, the men, women, uh, you know, young, young men, young women that were in those stands, uh, you know, we were out outnumbered. I mean, it was like thousands of people in the water. No, that's quite a scene. You know, it's like almost like statistically impossible that we wouldn't lose somebody. But what we were doing was we were taking an hour up and an hour down. We were toggling is the word that, that we use now to describe the switching on and off between, you know, sort of intense intensity and energy and rest and recovery and regeneration. And so that was the seed for me of, of what it would take to be impeccable in that arena. And that's what I look at today. And we can dive into more of the details of that, but what's missing for people in terms of developing their resilience is a, a system for switching on and switching off. They know how to switch on they, but the switch is stuck in on. It doesn't toggle between on and off. Right. And in so many ways, that's that's what's created this burnout, this sort of collective and mass uh, workplace burnout. Um, and and because people don't know any better, they lead they lead people in the wrong direction. They're they're setting the wrong example, even though they they want people to stay. They want to they want to keep their talent. They want people to be happy. They want them to be fulfilled and all the rest of it. And yet, you know, our research is clear. People, and it's funny because we have a 16 question assessment that we call the the resilience rank, rank your resilience assessment that we give to folks. And question 13 is a question that says, uh, you're, you are in a, in a, engage in a livelihood that's in line with your core values and beliefs. And that's always green. Like 85% of the time people say, yeah, I'm working in, in an area that is in line with my core values and beliefs. But the very next question is that there, there are significant gaps between what you say is important and how you actually allocate your time and energy. And that's almost always red, like high 80 percentile red. People are not allocating their time in accordance with, with what they say is important to them. So there's this massive disconnect and it's right there in front of us. And, and that's what I'm saying is that people in leadership roles today are just unaware of that disconnect. And that's why the exhaustion continues, the leads to burnout and now what we see is is a mass exodus for the moment right. from from those environments. Yeah. It, it sounds like it also has to be the frontline managers. You know, they've got their finger on the pulse of of the individuals and what everyone's going through, you know, in, in the trenches, as it were, of the work that's got to get done. Uh, even more so to the point of the hybrid worker and having to maintain that connection and, and cultural integrity of the organization, even aligning it with the strategy of what's trying to be achieved. Uh, and even more difficult, right, to keep your finger on that pulse when people are remote to really know what's going on. And for the individual themselves in the hybrid situation, how do you deal with that work-life balance and not burn out? It's not, we're no longer just generically talking about the workplace. The workplace is now, in a lot of cases, home. And so, you know, how is, you know, that's part of that whole uh, titanic shift uh, for sure. What role do you think training has here? in terms of the, the kinds of things that you're talking about. And we'll keep going into the, you know, these rituals in, of building recovery. We want to make sure we absolutely hit that. But also in the business environment, from the leadership side, this isn't going to happen by itself. 
So where does the, where's the training element come in for the leaders, for the managers? How does this happen? Well, I, let's just go back for a second um, to say that when we think about what is to be trained, if you're saying, well, it's, it's, uh, it's resilience training, or, or as uh, Bill Murray might say, it's resilience training, right, right. army training. Yeah, um, stripes. We're, we're good, good, good on you, Matt. Thanks, yep. It, um, it's mental, it's emotional, it's physical, it's spiritual. It's not, it's not one amorphous thing. People think about resilience, it's kind of like one big elephant. And, and actually, it's, it's broken down into smaller pieces uh, that we can identify um, as areas where people have to improve. So again, when we think about what we've researched and, and the way that we've studied it, it's in those four, four different zones. So it's what creates mental resilience? What are the rituals that help you to recover mentally? What creates emotional resilience? And what are the rituals to help you to recover emotionally and physically and even spiritually? Same thing. What, what is the measurement? How do we know whether we're doing well or not doing well? And, and what do we do to create this, this uh, regeneration in that area so we can improve? Um, so that's, that's the first thing is, you know, training. Um, it's like, what kind of training? Right. And, and so I think that's part of what's missing is that most people don't actually look at resilience in that way. So for us, it's a great avenue to sort of engage in the conversation um, and provide insights that, that people go, hmm, never really thought of it that way. Wasn't thinking of it that way. It's not the way I was you know, taught to, to look at it. And a lot of people think resilience is something you're born with. They think it's, you know, some people have it, some people don't have it. Um, they're not right. entirely certain that it can be trained. And, and we found that it absolutely can. Huh. Because again, um, we're just taking a look at what people's habits are. When I, when I use the word ritual, uh, I'm speaking about a consciously created act action of some kind hmm. that when we, so we say you ritualize to habitualize. So you, you get focused on it. You get really conscious about doing something different. And then at a certain point, it's like brushing your teeth. You don't think about it. You know, you pick up your toothbrush with the right or the left hand and you brush, uh, you know, unconsciously. Sometimes I'll give people the toothbrush challenge. It's something actually, um, you know, in, in the book here, we talk about some of those kind of things that, right. that you can do to simply begin to create new rituals. And, and the toothbrush challenge is simply take for the next week, the opportunity to every time you pick up your toothbrush, the way you normally do, switch hands and brush your teeth with the other hand, see what it's like. Obviously, it's going to be, you know, difficult. It's going to feel odd and all that kind of thing. But we're such creatures of habit. And so if you want to create a, a, a new habit, you've got to start by ritualizing it. So, for example, when it comes to your, your mental resilience, uh, how often is it during the day that you give yourself even a moment to rest your brain, to, to, to rest yourself? Right. Intentionally. So um, often, you know, I'll hear from a leader that says, hey, listen, um, I, I don't, you know, I don't want to give my, you know, I don't, we, we can't give them a week off, right? I can't give everybody a day off. You can't, <laughs> you know, we can't have people working an hour and then relaxing an hour like you did at the beach. That's not going to work for us. Then they're only working four hours a day, man. That's, that's just not, gonna, that's not going to cut it. Um, and, and what I tell them is um, rest and recovery rituals or regeneration rituals can take seconds. Sure. If you're conscious about it, if you choose them uh, intentionally and, and, and for a reason. So closing your eyes, simply closing your eyes. Like if we both close our eyes and I'm going to do that right now, Matt, you can join me, but 
if you're doing it, I can't see it because my eyes are closed, okay? <laughs> I, I feel my... awkward if I'm not doing it with you. Please, um, I'll close my eyes. Let's, let's... I, I love it. So <laughs> you close your eyes, you're immediately recalibrating your brain because with your eyes open, you're, you're taking in so much, so much. Your brain is so active taking in everything that's in front of it um, that it is taxed. But when you close your eyes, it's, it's like you're recapturing the, this, the, the ability to uh, perceive things. So your other uh, senses are heightened. You know, I can, I, my sense of, of uh, touch is heightened in this moment. My sense of hearing is heightened. Um, I can feel things that I'm not able to feel in the same way when, when my eyes are open and my brain is, is actively taking in other stimulus. So just to close your eyes for a couple of minutes. Wait, you didn't tell me to open my eyes. I opened my eyes and there you are looking at me. That wasn't supposed to happen. It's funny. I know. <laughs> no, you know, I, you're right. As you're saying it, you know, I've got the headphones on. I'm, I'm certainly tuning in a lot more to the voice. What else do I have to go on? But it, it does have that uh, that richer quality. It's a little bit of a mindfulness type type experience about that too. Um, but let's keep going into the into the rituals and uh, and wind down with some, you know, on, on the point of resilience because we'll get into the back end of the show here. What other recommendations do you have for individuals to build resilience as well as for what companies and leaders should be doing to uh, integrate it into the, to the culture and, you know, the norms of an organization? So it, th- there's no question that the culture is, is a reflection of, of what the leaders value. So if the, if the leaders value people being at their best as frequently, as often as possible, then the culture is going to reflect that. We, we like to refer to that as a got your back culture. It's just the way that, that we, we term it because that's what it was at the beach for me. You know, we had each other's backs. That's how we were able to be 20 lifeguards working uh, on and off, on an hour, off an hour, uh, 10 at a time. And we were able to succeed in that environment, a very difficult environment. So, um, you know, you, you must, uh, you know, the, the, the culture is as the culture does. So if the culture says, hey, we're in favor of people taking care of themselves, self-care is important. We, we want you to be uh, f- focused on your mental well-being and your mental health and all that. But the culture is still a reward, the, the night owl award uh, culture. Right. Uh, then then it's, it's, it's incongruous. And, and when it's, it's there's that kind of a disconnect, Matt. Uh, people feel it, and then only recently people have done something about it, which is really interesting. You know, again, going back to just the theme, I suppose, is the the parent parenting. Um, and you have kids, and I have kids. You know, our kids didn't listen to a word we said. I'd say, well, maybe my wife, but hardly ever listened to a word I said growing up. Um, and I say that cheeky in a cheeky way because. They watched, they watched everything. They watched everything we did. Right. The the modeling behavior. Exactly. Yeah. So, so that's, you know, that's really the point. So what leaders can do is of course, to learn about what is, what is it that uh, develops resilience? How, how do you teach resilience, train resilience? Obviously, you know, it's self-serving to say this, our company does that. That's what we do, but I'm not the only one. And, and we're not the only company that does that. Um, so it's really important that you really commit to it. And that it's not just a, a thing where you bring somebody in to speak 
about it for an hour. I mean, I'm happy to do that. We do that for organizations all the time, very large ones and very small ones. Um, but I will always say, even as we're sort of in a, in a call that's discovering how it is that we're going to serve that, that particular audience, I say, well, how important is this to you for the next 12, 18, 24 months? You know, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to establish whether or not they're committed to it for longer than just the length of a keynote, as an example. Um, because they're, the tangible benefits of resilient organizations are phenomenal. There's 73%. So you, you threw out some percentages earlier. I, I'm going to just hit, hit one or two now sure. um, because I think they're really important. 73% less turnover intention among employees that, are, that score high on our resilient scale. Mm. scale. So meaning people are less likely and are not thinking about leaving when they feel resilient in the organization that they're at. And they feel resilient in that organization, not necessarily because they're doing something outside of the organization that's producing that resilience. There's an element of that for sure, but it's the experience within that company that's helping them to feel more resilient. And that's why they don't have an intention or less frequently have an intention to go find other work. And I think that's a really, you know, you think about the bottom line today, it's costing companies billions and billions. It's incalculable how much money is, is being spent in just finding new talent, retraining new talent. It's so wasteful and I can't stand waste. So, you know, to me, um, this is the area of every area that, that I think an organization can focus on right now. I'd be focusing on that. Why are people leaving? No, right. I'm giving you the answer. I don't, I don't mind saying it. it might be audacious to say it, but I'm saying it. No, I know why people are leaving. We've studied it. We yeah. Know you've why done the homework. Of course. What to do about it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I think along these lines, in a way, the, uh, the, you know, the shift that's happening with the hybrid worker and just everyone adjusting and continuing through this adjustment really also creates the opportunity to address a topic like this. It's not like, Hey, you know, it's status quo and, Let's bring in this resilience, you know, resiliency expert to go through some program, and it, it might feel, you know, in uh, in past years, even forgive the expression, but maybe touchy feely, right? People might not take it so seriously, but now it's an imperative, and you know, to bring it in and say this is what we're doing to address a, a very obvious issue that everyone is having. I think it makes it that much more impactful. So it's a little plug there for you, if I may, Adam. And uh, along oh, this, you, yeah, my, my pleasure. I could go on and on about this topic. Uh, you know, I certainly share your passion about it. I look forward to reading the book. And again, we're talking about change proof, leveraging the power of uncertainty to build long-term resilience coming out in about a week on the 22nd. So Adam, I'm going to switch gears here and uh, we're going to get to insights to live by. But before we do, we have a, a, a brief segment on the show to get some insights about you. And we have what you see here on screen, the Wheel of Insights about Adam Markell. We're going to hit this a couple times. Let's see what we can learn about you. You ready? I'm ready. I am excited to see this, actually. So am I. Oh, this is right <laughs> down our alley. Oh, oh and also, Adam, uh, no two guests in the same season get the same question. You're the only one who is going to answer this question. What or who would be your favorite cartoon character? that you would like to hang out with. Now, I, I have, I'm pretty sure I know the answer to this that you're going to say, but I'm just going to, go ahead, I'm ready. Oh, man. Who do I want to hang out with as a cartoon character? Holy smokes. Well, we grew up on Saturday morning cartoons. No, I'm going to say Aquaman. I mean, I'm a, I'm a Pisces, I'm a swimmer. 
I got to okay. be in the water. It's wow. Aquaman for me. All right. I was wrong. I thought you'd say Bugs Bunny, personally. But uh, moving on, let's go to question number two. Adam Markell. Wow, this is not the shortest of answers, but we're going to have to just keep it a little tighter. Tell us about a life-altering event. Now, you know what? I think I'm going to spin one more time because you did talk about the life-altering event on the beach, and I think that's so powerful. That can't be topped. You know what? Would you? Mind? I'm going to condense my answer for this one. You want to give a different I can, answer I can, to I can this. deliver it to you really, one. really quickly. Oh, okay, All sure. Right. All right. You're so the I, guest. I already told the first part of it, which is I used to wake up and feel this kind of strange feeling. I ended up in the hospital on a, on a Saturday lying on a gurney with all these electrodes stuck to my chest. I should have been at my son's baseball game, but instead I'm lying in the emergency room thinking I'm having a heart attack. And as it turned out, the doctor told me my heart was fine. I was having an anxiety attack, a panic attack. Um, And, and that was a life altering event for me. I, I left fortunately got to walk out of the hospital that day um, and, and got a second chance at, you know, doing something differently. That's what led ultimately led to the insights that became the first book pivot. Um, And, and so um, one of the things that, that I ultimately ended up doing um, was starting my day, that sort of waking ritual, putting my feet on the floor, still do that to this day, put my feet on the floor, you know, like, a lot of us do. I haven't met anybody yet who levitates right out of the bed. Um, so I think we all have that in common. Um, yes. But now when I put my feet in the floor, I have a, a thing that I say out loud that is is quite a bit different and sets my day on the right, on the right, literally on the right foot, as my, my, my grandmother would say. And it's four simple words. And you mentioned them right before we hit the record button on this show. Yeah. And those words are, I love my life. And when I, when I say those words, I love my life, I am saying I'm thankful for my life. I'm grateful for my life. Doesn't mean my life is perfect. It, I love my life, comma, no matter what. Um, and those words, by the way, I didn't make them up. They came to me. I was watching one night when I was having trouble getting back to sleep. You know, I woke up in the middle of the night frequently and even after taking Ambien for several years to help me to go to sleep, I still had trouble staying asleep. And one night I was watching TV in the middle of the night and this movie, Jerry Maguire came on and, uh, and Jerry has this mentor that you get introduced to at the end of the film. He's this guy in the, you know, old seersucker suit in an old office with a little name plate on his desk that says Dickie Fox. And at a certain right. point, Dickie Fox says to Jerry, he goes, you know, I've made, I've made as many mistakes as I've, as I've succeeded or things I've done right, but I love my wife and I love my life. And I wish you my kind of success. And in that moment that I saw that movie that night, I, I heard that and I, I just turned the TV off. I knew how it ended already. I got back in bed. I knew I could sleep. And when I woke up the next morning, I put my feet on the floor, expecting to feel that same sort of anxious energy at the start of the day. Instead, my feet hit the floor and I actually said those words out loud, you know, inexplicably. They just flew out of my mouth. Uh, I love my life. And I've not stopped saying them for 12 years at this point. Um, and that's what my TED talk was about. I wrote a right. book uh, on this topic as well. So that's the life altering event, man. Yeah. I mean, Hey, you know, gratitude, uh, well-established as, uh, the, the most, uh, essential life enrichment technique in and around mindfulness to start your day with no better expression than I love my life. Highly recommend that it's worked for you. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, that's scary stuff, you know, lying on a gurney like that. And unfortunately, too many people have to go through some negative event in order to realize for what they 
uh, ought to be grateful, but take it right now. Don't have to go through that negative event. Take Adam's advice and make that shift. Now, that's a really good segue to our insights to live by. And on the show, we ask our guests to share three life lessons. You can do these in any order that you wish. These are the things that you might often say to words of advice. You hear yourself saying, maybe you got it from a grandparent or a parent or mentor. It could be anything. Adam Markell, what is your first insight to live by? This one's easy. Follow your heart. This this is the advice that would, you know, if I could go back and, and just give this advice to myself consistently when I was younger and I would obsess about things and worry about things, um, I would just say, follow your heart. And in many ways, that's following your instincts, which is advice that my dad gave to me. Uh, but to me, dialing into how, how you how you truly feel at your core, um, the that part of yourself, it's, it's just great for, you know, it's great guidance. As we said at the beginning, um, our, our ability to make right decisions and make spontaneous right decisions is so fundamental to our, our, our progress in life. You know, success gets used a lot. I'll just say progress at this moment. I like it. And, and, um, and following your heart, I think is essential in doing that. At least it has been for me. I love it. Yeah, you know, 75 episodes, very rarely does anyone say the same insight to live by. That has not been said yet. I'll put it right wow. there in the upper upper leagues. Everyone has to uh, has to connect more and be more heart-centered. And I think it's very easy to get caught up in our cerebral processes. And it really is very well aligned with everything you're talking about in and around resilience and, and building those rituals for recovery. All right, let's go into insight Number two, Adam, what do you have for us? Well, it'll be, it'll be about resilience. And that is to be for me to be less on guard, um, to live, to live instead of living on guard, I like to live on grace. And, and by that, I mean, um, I don't want to live in a place of fear and fear is, is really the only thing that gets in the way of joy and happiness and compassion. Fear, fear just gets in the way of kind of everything <laughs> that, that we want out of life or that I want out of life. So, you know, living, living on grace instead of living on guard um, is my way of saying that I'm, I'm, I'm releasing my, my need or, or I'm free of, of feeling fear, doubt, or worry. Um, and instead, I, I choose to focus on something that, that is more true that I'm loved, that I am loved, that I am surrounded by love, things like that. Um, it may sound spiritual if that's the way it sounds. That's fair. Um, it's oh. not tied to religion, but it is, but it is uh, to me just one of these um, essential truths. So, you know, every, every major religion has, has written about it, spoken about it, taught about it, et cetera. I'm not a big fan of organized, uh, organized um, uh uh, what's the word? word um, um, well, organized religion. We'll just say well, it's yeah, but, 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 but it, you, you mean uh, impo it, imposing? Uh, it's is that where you're going? Yeah, it's the way. It's the the dogma that right. that doesn't thrill me. Right, um, right. And and again, all, all you know, all good for people that that want that structure. But for me, right. the the tenets are the same. You know, if we can live in in a way that where we're more accepting than judgmental, our lives feel better. And, and truly, 
acceptance of, of things without judgment is the definition of being change proof. I've been, you know, I've written a whole book about what it takes to be change proof. Um, so to chunk it down into one statement is not easy, but, but that's how I would, I would put it, you know, because change is something that people are tremendously afraid of. Again, fear, where does fear show up? Fear shows right. up when there's change. Fear shows up when there's uncertainty, when there's an unknown. And, and so this book is about how you actually utilize it. How do you leverage it to, to learn one of the, you know, the great lessons of life. And, and, uh, and maybe that'll be the third insight. So I'll, I'll, I'll sh stop short of that. But again, to embrace change without judgment, to accept it without judgment. Yeah. That's being change proof. Yeah. I mean, like you said, you're going to talk about how many times Rocky got knocked down. I'm going to have to go back to this particular insight to live by and find out how many insights to live by are actually folded in this one insight to live by that you gave. And it's true, you know, and, and I think the whole notion in and around fear, certainly topically as it aligns to uh, your, your new book being change proof, but Overarching, I, I think that I, I want of all that you said, I, I really want to touch back on that barrier that is in and around fear. And a lot of the elite inspirational speakers, uh, such as yourself, I'm sure I know you're much more than an inspirational speaker, but when you're talking about these things, this is really what we're often reminded of because it comes too naturally, right? Our, our instincts are part of that, but from a quality of life standpoint, it really becomes this invisible barrier that we're not even entirely conscious about. So you have to confront it. And, uh, and, and that's really where uh, I'm glad that came up. All right. Now, you might have already gotten into your third insight to live by, but let's formalize it. All right. What do you say? We have to Adam? learn from the future. Simple. Learn from go, the future. Ah, Adam, what are you talking about, man? Got to learn from the future? Yeah, I was like, going to yeah. say, that's not simple. <laughs> It is simple. It is. I'll prove it to you. Okay. You go back 10 years in your life and, and think about something that was causing you some stress you were worried about, you know, was this some disruption, some change? You didn't know how it would turn out, blah, blah, blah. Pick anything 10 years ago. And there's one lesson that the future could have taught you then that you'll recognize right now. I'm, an, I'm just asking you, there's no right or wrong answer here, but, um, Matt, what's one lesson that the future would have taught you 10 years ago? You're, 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 you're turning the show back on me. I am a little. <laughs> um, I, I honestly go back to the gratitude, gratitude and mindfulness. Just from, a, just from a quality of life enrichment standpoint that I've been able to put that more into practice. I, do, uh, I, I don't say I love my life as much as I'm thankful for another day. Uh, when I put my feet on the floor, uh, you know, I had these triggers. Uh, when I brush my teeth, I use that time to experience gratitude. What else am I going to do? I'm there anyway. Uh, so I think folding gratitude into my life is something I wish that uh, I'd, I'd integrated when I was younger. Yes. So the lesson that the future was teaching you then and can teach us now is that everything that's, that's happening is for your, for your good. Everything that's that's happening is is net positive because it produces growth, right? And that's the thing that you don't know in the moment. You know, ten years ago when you were worried about something, you didn't realize. Well, okay, the future is going to teach me right now. The wisdom of the future is that everything that's happening is actually happening for my benefit. It's for my good. It's for my growth. It's net positive. You now, because if you could see it that way, if you could not just see it philosophically, but you really could understand it at a core level that that's what's happening. 
you would entirely, you would interact with it entirely differently than you might have otherwise. And that's the thing is that so much disruption is happening. so much uncertainty. There's so much evolution that's occurring that people are, are stressed out beyond belief by it. And yet right. it's, this is the greatest moment of opportunity that we've ever experienced for our growth, the growth of individually and collectively and everything else. So that's the wisdom of the future. And again, if I could go back to being 22 years old or 32 years old to realize that, man, I would have worried a lot less. I would have stressed a lot less. My body would have felt better. My mind would have been clearer. I would have been able to take more right action because of that. But if if you had done that, you wouldn't have necessarily pivoted to the extent that you did. So there's the example, right? You had to go through all of that uh, challenge in order to recognize the experience on the gurney. Uh, that you had to, to turn your life to what it is to create a book that impacted lives to the degree that it has. And it is really the right place here, I think, to tie up the conversation because in talking about being change-proof and in and around resilience, you really just got into mentioning how we want to develop that ability to experience those setbacks and failures. We're all going to encounter them, but then use them to create momentum and that's what we're talking about. That's really more what you're talking about, Adam, in and around resilience. Um, any final thoughts as we wrap up here? I certainly want to, you know, we'll have in the show notes, you know, adammarkell.com. Once again, the brand new future bestseller book, not too soon from now, Change Proof, Leveraging the Power of Uncertainty to Build Long-Term Resilience. Adam Markell, any final thoughts? I'll just say that it's, it's really important to establish a baseline you know, for people who are watching, listening to this right now, what's the, what's the baseline for your, your resilience, mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually, um, they can go, folks can go to resiliencerank.com, resiliencerank.com to take that assessment entirely free. There's no strings attached. Wonderful. And what's great about not just getting the score, the score is, is of course important, but what you do with the score is really the most important. So you'll also get a free uh, resource guide that's that's not a superficial uh, exploration of the kinds of rituals that we could only just begin to even scratch the surface. Like what's the morning ritual? Because we ritualize everything in our day, uh, or we can to to maximize our capacity, our to create optimal states of being for the work that we do in the world, whether that's work in our families or work on our own projects as entrepreneurs or the work that we're doing remotely for other people or, or even the work that we're doing inside of a traditional workplace. So, uh, so yeah, I think that's, the, that's the, where the rubber meets the road for me is to figure out, you know, are you, are you driving on, on, uh, on, on tires that are worn or bald? And, and if so, no problem. You know, there's a, there's a, thing you can do to 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 write that situation before you hit the wall and my trip to the emergency room was just an example of what it looks like when you hit the wall and I got lucky because I got to walk out of that hospital that day and not everybody does so yeah well well fairly put and uh but but on that note uh I, I do want to tie back to you know, that morning ritual that's I'm working so hard on that right now Adam uh even you know it never stops right that progress that, uh, that self-improvement, but I'm finding that so continuously enriching, trying to get up earlier, you know, and, yes. and ritualize the things that you're talking about, taking your advice before you even gave it. Um, <laughs> it feels very affirming. I just want to say Adam Markell, thank you again very much for being our guest here on insights to live by I'm wishing you all the best. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Matt. 
Hope you enjoyed this episode of Insights to Live By. Be sure to connect with me at mattzinman.com in our happierness community and get our free video series, Three Zisms for a Better Life. Wishing you and yours an enriching day, and we'll see you next time.